Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet. Today, I'm excited to have on the show Louise Matsakis. Louise is an independent reporter covering technology and the internet. She previously spent three years as a staff writer at Wired Magazine, where she focused on Amazon and TikTok. She has also been an editor at Vice Media's Motherboard and Rest of World, a nonprofit publication focused on tech and culture in the Global South. Louise, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. How's it going? It's going great. Um, so today, we're going to take a trip around the world and discuss Amazon's presence in the Global South. Louise has covered a number of countries. We will peek into the conditions uh, for workers, uh, Amazon workers there in Mexico, Japan, Pakistan, India, and South Africa. I hope we can also get to some general thoughts from Louise about how Amazon's presence differs by country. She's covered um, Global North and United States and um, kind of compare their behavior to the Global South. Um, I also want to note that I may be following up this episode with a deep dive into Amazon's new plant headquarters in Cape Town, South Africa. Tech Empire is part of the Yale Podcast Network and can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. On Twitter, visit Tech Empire Cast. My Twitter account is Michael underscore Quet, and Louise's account is L Matt Sackis, L M A T S A K S. I suggest following her there. Um, okay, so Louise, let's start with uh, Mexico. We heard a few months back that Mexico is building a new warehouse in Tijuana. And when this was announced, images went viral on Twitter, um, kind of looking at it as a symbolic of inequality. Um, what did you discover in your investigation? Yeah, so I think what really stood out to people was that in Tijuana, there was this gigantic Amazon warehouse um, that was sort of juxtaposed next to um, sort of a dilapidated housing development right next door, right? Like you saw these sort of like shanty houses made out of cardboard and, you know, scraps of metal. Um, and behind it sort of ominously was the gigantic signature Amazon um, Arrow logo, right, which was like hanging above um, sort of these dirt roads. Um, so it's kind of an incredible image. Um, and a lot of people initially said that maybe Amazon was opening this warehouse so close to the U.S. border in order to skimp on labor costs, right? So in order to maybe also skimp on tariffs so that they could import goods, say, from China, um, have them, you know, packaged in Tijuana and then ferried across the border. Um, my investigation showed that that's probably really unlikely. Um, and that sort of what the Tijuana warehouse was actually a symbol of was Amazon's growing presence in Latin and South America. Um, so I think that to me, it obviously is a symbol of stark inequality in a lot of ways. Um, but what I also realize is that it's a symbol of how quickly e-commerce is growing, especially in the global South, um, particularly because of the pandemic, right? Like there was this whole group of shoppers in places like Mexico that had never shopped online. Um, and then suddenly they were subject to lockdowns um, and there was all of a sudden this gigantic interest in e-commerce. Um, so I think Amazon is capitalizing on that, right? Like Tijuana is one of the largest cities in North America. Um, it's a growing big metropolis. It's not surprising to me that they would open a warehouse there. Um, 
But I think a lot of the coverage we saw in the U.S. was like, oh, this must be a way to exploit exploit um, Mexican labor. And I think that there's a good reason for that. And the reason for that is that for a long time, we have had this system where cars, um, medical devices, and other goods are sort of assembled in Mexico in order for companies to save on labor costs, and then they go across the border, right? So there's a historical reason there. Um, but I think that sort of people miss the forest for the trees in that case, and sort of missed Amazon's growing empire outside the U.S. Yeah. Um, so you wrote, uh, after the Trump administration began imposing new tariffs on Chinese goods three years ago, uh, that, so that at the time of writing is what, early, was it this late 2020, early 21, 2021? Uh, that I wrote this article. Yeah. The article yeah. came out a few months ago in the summer. Yeah. So um, some online sellers began relying on a U.S. customs exemption known as de minimis threshold. Uh, can you tell us about how this works? Yeah. So uh, the de minimis threshold is actually a huge, um, like, you know, fascinating interest of mine that I can't get enough of in a lot of ways. So it's super fascinating. Um, and let me explain it to you in one really uh, good example, I think. So the other day I went on eBay um, and I bought a vintage Gucci bag from Japan. <laughs> and I think it was like $200. Um, so I imported it from Japan, right? I was not subject to any tariffs, nor was the seller. And that's because of something called the de minimis threshold. And if you've ever gone on vacation, you've probably encountered this before because you come back in the, to the US and you're asked to sign this little form, right? And it says, you know, how much stuff are you bringing back into the US? Does it exceed a certain amount of money? And that number now is $800. So as long as it doesn't exceed $800, you don't need to pay import duties on it, right? Um, so that's a really big number and it's much larger than most countries. So a lot of countries it's around like $50 or hundred dollars. And it's just so you can import, you know, really small stuff or, you know, bring home, you know, small items for your family. But the U S has this gigantic exemption and it was actually, um, increased, I think from a couple hundred dollars to $800 during the Obama administration. And what that has allowed many companies to do is to bring stuff into the country to American consumers directly without needing to pay any taxes. Um, and the problem with this, it's great for the consumer, right? This means that you can go on, say, Shein, which is a big Chinese fast fashion company that is um, enormous now in the U.S. and really popular among young girls. You can go on there and buy a $24 dress and you can import it into the U.S., um, but if you bought that same dress at a boutique in the U.S., um, it would probably be about 20% more just to account for duties and customs. But you don't have to pay those if you're an international company and you're sending something directly to a consumer as long as it's $800, less than $800. So when Trump- So your Gucci bag then was less than 800 bucks? Yeah, it was like $200. It was like a vintage, <laughs> a vintage Gucci bag. Exactly. So like it was, it, I was totally fine. I was totally in the clear. Um, so this has obviously been a huge and very vital loophole for e-commerce companies, right? It's not just eBay. When you buy something cheap on Amazon and you get it sent to your house directly and it takes two weeks or whatever, you're also benefiting from this. But, you know, critics say that it harms local retailers. But so the example in Mexico is that during the pandemic, I mean, not during the pandemic, uh, during the height of the Trump during the height of the trade war, when Trump put all these new, uh, you know, import duties on Chinese companies, what some of them said is, okay, I will, you know, send my pallet of doodads to Mexico first, and then I will send individual packages over the border 
to individual consumers. And as long as you're sending the item to the consumers directly, uh, you don't need to pay import taxes. Again, as long as it's under $800. So, but that applies to a lot of stuff, right? It's kind of unusual for you to buy something online that costs more money than that, right? Of course, people do all the time, but most of these things are like small consumer goods that you're importing, right? So it's been this sort of huge boom. And what we have seen um, during the pandemic, especially, is there's been an, an enormous increase in the number of these packages coming into the U.S. So this is an exception that many more companies are relying on as sort of e-commerce becomes more global. Um, but it's just sort of fascinating and an incredible um, exception. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just think about my own experience buying stuff on eBay. Right. And you see something that might be in L.A. or, or something like that. And you see the same looking product that's coming from, say, China. And you kind of wonder, you know, if they're just shipping it to LA first and then shipping it over. Um, so yeah, um, it's really fascinating to look at the way people try to get around these things. And you speak about that um, in Pakistan. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so um, last question on, on kind of Amazon and in, in, in Mexico. Uh, you say that they're competing with Argentinian e-commerce giant Mercado Libre. Right. Um, what kind of competition does Amazon face in Latin America? How dominant are they so far? So, you know, just to back up a little bit, I think one thing that's good to understand about Amazon's e-commerce business is that uh, it's pretty nascent basically everywhere except for the U.S., um, Europe and Japan. Um, so they don't even break out their earnings in Latin America and places like India. So we don't know, but we know from sort of like their total earnings that these are pretty small markets right now. Um, but what there is, is an enormous opportunity. Um, so what you see with Mercado Libre is sort of this um, guerrilla sort of on the ground battle where they're trying to build out infrastructure as quickly as possible. So that's exactly what this warehouse is. It's part of that infrastructure that Amazon is trying to build out. And unlike somewhere like the US, um, you know, you're talking about how can you figure out to, how, how do you figure out how to get packages to consumers in 24 hours or less in places where there's not a super developed highway system, um, where, you know, getting to a specific address might be difficult via GPS. Um, so it's this really basic level of sort of logistics infrastructure that both of these companies are trying to build up right now. Um, but yeah, they face really stiff competition, I would say. You know, there's, there's this really big opportunity and something like Mercado Libre and some of these other companies, they have a lot more sort of like local knowledge that they can build on. Um, but that doesn't mean that Amazon uh, is, you know, the underdog here by any means. Um, they're doing a lot of really smart stuff that they've sort of replicated from other parts of the world, um, you know, like partnering with OXO, which is this chain of um, convenience stores in Mexico. So you could pick up your Amazon package at OXO, right? We're seeing like trends like that where and they're learning that from things that they've done in the U.S., things that they've done in India. Um, so I would say they face really stiff competition, but by no means are they an underdog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting. They don't they don't break the revenue out for Latin America. I know that when I looked into um, the big five GAFM, um, Amazon was really the one that uh, I think it was like 70 percent of the revenues come from the United States. Uh, but the others were about half or more um, coming outside of U.S. borders. Um, so yeah, um, it'll be interesting. And another thing that I, I just, I do find interesting about that is, um, you know, this, uh, Mercado Libre, I'm, I'm assuming that they, 
they're not necessarily, you know, they want to be the Amazon of Latin America, right? Like I did my research in South Africa. So um, you see what's called local, like Showmax does Netflix in South Africa and they're expanding out into other places. But um, people who are, you know, looking at social justice issues will consider them kind of like sub-imperialist, right? Like, you know, it's just trying to be Netflix of Africa coming out of the rich country of Africa, South Africa. Um, so I'm, I'm, I would, I would love to like myself kind of look into um, how these markets un unfold in the global South with an eye to um, the question of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, sometimes you have these kind of sub-imperial ism going on. Um, so yeah. Um, Japan. So um, you wrote a couple articles on Japan uh, about, I'll probably uh, mispronounce here, but Masafumi Ito, who is leader of the Amazon Japan Union, um, who sued for wrongful determination. And um, you wrote an article about union leaders in Japan. Say Amazon is weaponizing bogus performance metrics to weed them out. So um, what's going on in this situation? Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting case of sort of um, Amazon trying to import its own values into a country that has really different ones, right? Um, so to back up a little bit, I think what's so interesting about Japan is that they have a really different um, regulatory framework for uh, employee organizing. Um, so in the US, you know, you have to have a majority, you have to go through um, a voting process in order for a union to be recognized. Um, in Japan, you know, I think two or more people can get together and decide that they want to form a union, um, which is a very different environment. Uh, not that there aren't, you know, problems there as well. Um, so as a result, Japan is one of the only places in the world where there are some Amazon workers that are unionized. Um, and in this case, they're actually the corporate workers. They're not um, the warehouse workers, which a lot of people um, might assume. So I think it's really interesting to sort of see this employee activism mirroring uh, to Japan, right? Because we've seen a lot of employee activism amongst corporate and warehouse workers in the US, in Europe, and in other parts of the world. Um, and in Japan, they got uh, very upset about this issue that has kind of been a persistent problem at Amazon, according to workers, which is these performance improvement plans. Um, so Amazon kind of has a Darwinian uh, employment structure in which, um, you know, it's very easy, or I shouldn't say it's very easy, but uh, they're constantly monitoring performance and they're not afraid to sort of like weed out the underperformers. Um, in Japan, you know, the longstanding belief, although this is definitely changing and there's a lot more sort of temporary work and there's a lot more um, uh, contract work the way that we're seeing in the US. Uh, but historically, it's like, okay, I dedicated my life to you, um, you know, my company, my employer. Therefore, you should be loyal to me in return. You can't just get rid of me because. I'm not, you know, performing up to your standards. You should move me to a different department. Uh, you should make it more clear, right? Like you need to work with me. Um, so that's what Ioto was complaining about. He said that he was wrongfully terminated, even though, um, you know, his performance was up to snuff. Uh, and what's interesting is that Business Insider had really good reporting showing that the same things were happening in the U.S. So what that said to me is that they sort of imported this way of managing their workers and this philosophy around employee retention and around um, 
you know, if you're not a good fit, we're going to get rid of you, right? Like these very sort of capitalistic, um, scientific ways of looking at um, your workforce. And it really wasn't working in Japan, right? And what we saw is that there was a lot of sympathy amongst the average Japanese worker to, um, to these Amazon workers, right? Like they often alleged that they were gaslit, that, you know, Amazon wasn't clear about what their expectations were, that they were having a health problem or whatever. And the company just essentially tried to get rid of them. Um, but what's different, you know, from the workers in the U S is that the Amazon workers in Japan had, um, you know, the ability to unionize, right? They had the ability to collective organize, collectively organize with one another, which, whereas that would be really, really difficult in the US. Um, but it was sort of crazy to see um, these exact same issues mirrored on other sides of the world. Because um, I think sometimes you think of like a satellite office like Japan as having not much, you know, culturally in common with the Amazon headquarters, right? But in this case, we showed that there really was sort of a strong connection in a lot of ways, and and that can really wreak havoc. <laughs> yeah, um, you talk in the article about um, work conditions and and um, PIPs. So I want you to tell us about those. And uh, somebody described them as Kafka esque. So what does that mean? And why? What are PIPs? And why would they be described? Uh, in that way, like you said, this Darwinian kind of um, employment structure, um, what's what's really going on in this sense? Yeah, so PIPs or PIPs are performance improvement plans. Um, and basically what workers allege is that, um, you know, your boss will decide that you're not meeting expectations for one reason or another, um, and then you get put on a performance improvement plan or a PIP. Um, and that's supposed to give you sort of clear expectations about where you went wrong, um, maybe like a certain sales goal or a certain productivity goal that you need to meet the next quarter in order to keep your job or in order to like, you know, not be placed on another PIP. Um, basically in order to, you know, get out of purgatory, right? But what employees allege is that the PIPs are often really confusing. Um, they don't make sense. They're placed on workers for arbitrary reasons, um, or it's never explained to them why they were placed on a PIP, um, or even worse, they were placed on one and they were unaware that that was even the case. Um, and that it was sort of, they're often used according to the workers as sort of um, justification for getting rid of you, right? So it's not actually a way to help workers. Instead, it's um, sort of a tool to get rid of them. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up that Kafka-esque comment, because I think that that was actually in Gawker like 10 years ago or something, a really long time ago. So this has kind of been a persistent problem at the company. Um, and we've seen other reporting from, from other outlets showing that you know, to the very top levels of the company, like even, even at the Jeff Bezos level, um, there wasn't uh, a lot of... Um, sort of concern or value in necessarily retaining workers for the long haul, right? Like that there was some understanding of like, if you're not a good fit, we're going to get rid of you. Uh, we, we don't necessarily think this is a long-term job for you, right? So, so it's a very different way of looking at employment, especially I think for a lot of Japanese workers where, like I said, this is um, not, not the understanding that they have of, of the relationship with their employer. Yeah. And, and uh, in the article, you say rest of the world, reviewed an internal manual for Amazon supervisors in Japan that instructs them to identify the bottom 10% of workers each year and push them to raise their performance using tools like PIPs. The tech giant expects those who fail to meet expectations will leave the company voluntarily. So um, this became um, an issue 
um, Masafumi Ito um, suing for wrongful termination. Um, is there, I, I looked yesterday, I didn't see any progress yet on, on the case, but uh, you did mention that, uh, you know, the Japanese courts tend to be uh, people who, who um, sue against IBM, I think you have mentioned, and some others um, sometimes win. So um, uh, I guess that's something to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, I don't um, attest to be sort of a Japanese legal expert, but it did seem like there was potentially a case here. Um, and I'm definitely still sort of continuing to watch it closely. Yeah, so let's move on then to um, Pakistan. So this was an interesting one that I wanted to also try to get some clarity on. So you, you start the article off uh, speaking about um, a 21-year-old named Hufesa Khan, uh, who sifts, in this case, was sifting through jackets for quality control, things like broken zippers, and, um, you know, working, it looks like here, for a family business that um, the, these jackets then make the, their way to the United States through the family company Price Right, which lists its products on the U.S. Amazon website. But some countries, like and correct me if I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here, uh, I think I'm getting this right. Some countries like North Korea and Iran are not on the list of over 100 countries that Amazon allows on its platform and uh, appear to be that you were saying that Pakistan is also banned. Um, how, does, how does Amazon make those determinations, uh, especially is it in light of human rights things? I mean, is Saudi Arabia you know, participating? Um, what's the deal? So we're going to get to what the story is about, which is kind of getting around these restrictions. Um, but what's the deal with um, this, this, you know, list of countries that are allowed to um, participate on Amazon's e-commerce platform? This is a good question. So I think to back up a little bit, I think one thing that's worth stressing that um, I don't think is often clear is that Amazon's platform um, functions just like eBay, right? It functions just like Etsy. It's a global marketplace of millions of sellers. Um, and the reason that I say that, even though it might seem obvious, is that I think unlike an Etsy or a Google or, or an eBay, Amazon takes a lot of steps in order to make that unclear to you or to obfuscate that, right? So like when you click on a product, for example, and you look at that product page and you think about adding it to your cart, um, there's something called the add to cart or the buy now button, right? Um, and what that actually is, is uh, it is an algorithm that decides which seller you purchase from. So 10 sellers might be competing to sell you that same teacup, um, but Amazon has decided based on shipping time, price, and a number of other factors, who should get to sell you that teacup, right? Whereas on Etsy or on eBay, you might Google, you know, vintage teacup or blue teacup or something, and you'll see all those sellers in a list and you get to make that decision, right? But Amazon pre-makes that decision for you. And I think that that helps obfuscate the fact that there is this gigantic global marketplace sort of behind Amazon's success. They're also different in the sense that, you know, they run their own warehouses. Um, they often handle a lot of sort of the logistics infrastructure for sellers. So that's why when you get a package, it comes in an Amazon envelope, right? But the person selling that product to you is actually often not Amazon itself, although, you know, sometimes it is. And Amazon also has their own line of products, but there's also this big marketplace. Um, so, you know, over the last few years, uh, especially China, 
But a lot of people, uh, a lot of manufacturers, a lot of sellers all over the world have tried to get in on this marketplace, right? Because it's a huge um, opportunity for people who, uh, you know, manufacture clothing, um, all sorts of manufacturers in different parts of the world. So we looked at Pakistan because it was this example of where it showed kind of what an enormous opportunity Amazon's marketplace is to the point that these manufacturers, and like you mentioned um, about Mr. Khan and his jackets, uh, happened to be making clothing, um, that they were trying to get around Amazon's rules in order to sell their leather jackets on Amazon's platform, even though at the time, and thankfully it's recently changed and they have opened up their marketplace to sellers from Pakistan. Um, but at the time they were using sort of all these crazy workarounds, like trying to register a seller account in the UK or the US, um, you know, and I think it just shows like how um, important it is if you make basically anything in any part of the world to have access to Amazon's customers, right? And Amazon sort of can control that. Um, and that was what we sort of wanted to show uh, in that story was just these, um, you know, small business owners often in places like Pakistan that are clamoring to get on the platform. Um, to your question about like, how do they choose? Uh, and it, we were sort of perplexed because, um, I think Bangladesh, uh, India, um, a number of other countries in the region near Pakistan were on the list. So we were also had the same question as you, sort of like, what is the determination? Um, and what it seems to be is not really about human rights, although I don't think that they would allow sellers from Iran less for like human rights reasons, but more for like sanctions. Um, I think that it's often about sort of the infrastructure of the country. So one of the things that they looked at was um, like the banking infrastructure in Pakistan. And what we found sort of fascinating was that Amazon was basically negotiating directly with the Pakistani government to try and like make this happen, right? So they were like, you know, we need X, Y, Z regulations. We need X, Y, Z things in place in order to do this. And I think what that shows is sort of the power of a company like Amazon to sort of act as a quasi state, right? Like they are interfacing with this enormous government, right? Like this is a country of, of what, over 150 some million people. And they are negotiating directly with Amazon in order to boost their, their manufacturing and their um, e-commerce sector. Um, so I think that basically what happened is that Pakistan, um, passed these like e-commerce regulations and that finally allowed uh, Amazon to open up to sellers there. And so that, so that's, uh, so that a company like price, right? This um, Pakistani, uh, you know, family owned company that's so that they can get listed. So let's say you're a consumer in the United States or somewhere else. Um, they can be officially listed and you can buy a jacket from them. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So before, you know, until earlier this year when they did um, begin uh, opening up to uh, sellers in Pakistan, they, they knew about the market, right? And they wanted to be on Amazon. So they were using all of these sort of crazy workarounds in order to list their products on the platform. Um, so it's not necessarily that your jacket would come straight from Pakistan, right? Like they might be using um, Amazon's logistic ne logistics network again. So it might come from a warehouse closer to you, um, but it's like figuring out how to be part of that pipeline, right? Like how, do, how can I start selling directly on Amazon? Um, I think what we're also seeing to Amazon's, I don't know if to their credit necessarily, but what we're also seeing is that this allows manufacturers to be um, their own sellers, right? Like it allows you to get much closer to the, where your products are actually coming from than ever before. Because, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago, um, you know, if I owned a leather store or something, a distributor, 
would need to go to Pakistan, look at samples, maybe order, you know, order some products or like, you know, order some designs, discuss prices with them, you know, and then bring them back to the U.S., right, or have them imported to the U.S., um, but now I think those middlemen are sort of shrinking, right? Like they're going away because you don't need that distributor anymore because now someone like Mr. Khan can just put his jackets directly on Amazon, right? So that like that middleman is no longer getting a cut anymore. And I think that what you're seeing is more power sort of shifting directly to the manufacturers, directly to the sellers in people in places like China and places like Pakistan, um, which has, you know, been good for prices. Uh, and it's also sort of wreaked havoc in terms of like, we've seen a lot of dangerous products. We've seen, um, you know, sort of the rise of fake reviews. And Fraud, yeah. yeah. So, it, yeah. It, you know, there's, it's good and bad, but I think it's, it is, can, it can be very empowering. I think for some of these small companies in places like Pakistan to be able to reach such a powerful, um, group of consumers through Amazon so quickly and so easily. Yeah, and and you have mentioned um, that there's this kind of like um, surrounding mini industry of workers um, that uh, gig workers. So you say there are enough unofficial Pakistani Amazon sellers that a cottage industry of gig workers has sprung up to support them. It includes Amazon virtual assistants, freelancers who aid with everything from customer service to administrative tasks, fulfillment consultants, web developers. Um, they gather together in Facebook groups with names like ex extreme commerce and e-commerce by enablers. Um, so what's going on here? Um, is it that, so let's bring it back to this, this um, you know, 21 year old Huvesa Khan who is selling jackets for his family price right. So then there are other people from Pakistan who then wind up assisting with the process of getting those items to market. Um, am I right? It's well, how does this cottage industry work that you're speaking of? Yeah. So this is another one of my favorite sort of like weird topics is that I think what people don't realize is that there is an entire underworld of what I almost would call like Amazon gurus and almost like lawyers to some extent, because Amazon has such complicated rules for sellers and so many different requirements. Um, and there's now there's like, you know, you can buy advertising through Amazon so you can advertise your products. Um, there's so many different aspects to running an Amazon business, even though it seems relatively simple, right? Cause you think like, okay, I've sold on eBay before, like how hard is it, right? Like I took a picture of the jacket and then I put it on the internet. Um, Amazon does not work that way. It's, it's extremely regulated. Um, there are a lot of considerations, especially if you want to be successful, right? If you want to be high up in the search results, if you want to have good reviews. Um, and what often happens is that Amazon will take down your listings for unclear reasons. Um, so if that happens to you, or if you're having problems, or if your business is not successful, what you can do is turn to this these lawyers and they can sort of interpret the Amazon tea leaves for you. Look at the policies, say based on other cases I've looked at in the past is how you should handle this. Um, or you can get an assistant who will help you, you know, run ads or, you know, interact with customers um, or even uh, a big business is writing um, like the descriptions, right? Like if you're in Pakistan, you don't speak English that well, like how are you going to write the description of your leather jacket, right? Like these are all these sort of interesting considerations that have given rise to, like you said, this cottage industry of all these people who help Amazon sellers. And this exists in the US, this exists in Europe. Um, it's 
kind of impressive to me just how many of these people there are. Um, but what was so fascinating about the people in Pakistan is that, you know, it wasn't a country that was supposed to be on Amazon at all, right? So here was this whole economy of people who were helping the, Am the Amazon sellers who weren't supposed to be on Amazon in the first place because Amazon hadn't allowed them to enter its marketplace. Um, so again, I think it just comes back to like what incredible power this platform has um, and how interesting it is that like, you know, it's complicated rules have given rise to all these people to help you with those rules. Um, it's just such a like hidden world that I think Amazon does everything it can to um, make invisible to the consumer on the other end, who is just, you know, saying add to cart, my toilet paper will be here tomorrow. Yeah, uh, for sure. So I, I want to um, jump just to, let's do it like a quick, um, you know, breeze uh, by uh, India. And I think maybe we'll skip South Africa and leave that to the um, folks. Um, but I do want to say that you wrote uh, a great piece. And when I contacted them, they said it's one of the best pieces that they've read on it. So um, nice yeah, so um, uh, we'll, we'll bring that up when, when, we, when, when I chat with them. Um, and then I want to ask you a couple of general questions because I, I think these are interesting. I want to know what your, your you know, some patterns and things you, you've seen. So in, in India, um, Amazon drivers are going, the art, your article you wrote is why Amazon drivers are going on a his, an historic strike in India. Um, so it was the first nationwide strike against Amazon in India. Um, you know, kind of what, what happened here? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, you know, Amazon's e-commerce business in India is still fairly nascent, but you're seeing this really big push. Right. I think Jeff Bezos visited India a few times um, this and, and they see this enormous opportunity. Right. There's this gigantic growing middle class. Um, there are there's a lot of interest in e-commerce. Um, it's it's an economy that's rapidly digitizing. Um, you know, data is getting much cheaper. Almost everyone has a smartphone now. Um, and so I think that Amazon was like, OK, this is going to be sort of a slam dunk for us. And what they quickly realized is that. Um, you know, India fought back, right? There's been uh, problems amongst workers. Um, and a lot of it had to do with sort of like wages being slashed. Um, you know, drivers, especially during the pandemic, as we saw in other parts of the world, saying that, um, you know, I'm risking my life to deliver these e-commerce packages and I'm not being compensated uh, fairly. Um, and what I think the story also showed is sort of the power of um, organized labor in India, right? Like you saw these, um, you know, community organizing groups, these unions, like helping whip up these workers. Um, and often it was across platforms, right? Like it's not just Amazon, it's Somato, um, it's other delivery apps. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback there. And I think also just it's worth mentioning that there's also been pushback on um, the seller side, right? Like a lot of small businesses are angry at uh, Amazon having, you know, exclusive access to certain products or sort of taking away from the local, especially like the local cell phone stores. Um, Cause you know, now those, those devices will be sold exclusively on Amazon or cheaper on Amazon or whatever it is. Um, so we're seeing a lot of pushback in India, you know, from organized labor and from sort of these uh, very entrenched um, like sort of merchant groups, basically, these, these very organized, very ancient, like longstanding networks of merchants across the country. And, and they're sort of all pushing back against this e-commerce giant in a way that I think was unexpected. Um, and I think you're seeing that sort of across the board um, in India. Like, I think a lot of American tech giants, Facebook, Google, 
um, you know, even TikTok, a Chinese company, uh, saw India as this enormous and pretty easy opportunity, right? Like I said, growing middle class, um, very large English speaking population. And what they got was not what they expected. Um, a lot of pushback, um, you know, especially seeing the social media platforms, there's a lot of pushback to do more censorship lately. Um, but yeah, I think that this was just sort of one example of that. Um, and in this case, it was the workers going on this big strike saying, you know, like we're not being paid enough. We're watching our pay fall. Um, and at the time, you know, cases were were rising in India and it was it was sort of the height of the pandemic. And I think that that was part of it, too. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to ask you uh, just a, a few general questions, um, you know, obviously you've looked into a lot of different countries here um, across the world. And one of the things I was wondering is what kinds of criticisms and attitudes towards Amazon did you see in the sense that um, here we're looking at global South countries, um, is there any sense or sentiment that Amazon is a kind of, you know, modern day East India company, an imperialist entity that um, colonizes markets and exploits labor or was there more a sentiment just about wages and um, working conditions? I mean, I think it depends on who you ask, right? Like, I think um, I I would say that the big shift I've seen over the last few years is that there used to be a lot of excitement about the American tech giants coming into these countries, where it was seen as um, uh, an enormous opportunity, a sign of sort of the country's, uh, the, the vitality of the country's economy, right? It was like a stamp of approval. These companies were seen as really futuristic and that they were going to bring opportunities, internet access, um, you know, uh, increased communication capabilities. Um, and now I think there's a lot more skepticism, uh, right? Like you still see this pattern somewhat. Like I think that um, the Pakistani government was really excited to have Amazon open its platform to sellers there, right? Like that's a little bit different because it's less about consumers. You still can't buy from Amazon in Pakistan. So it's not, it's a little bit different, but I think you still see some of that, but I think there's been a big tide shift towards like, you know, we don't want to be exploited. Um, what, what will your presence do for us? What will it do to the local economy? Um, and increasingly, I think the uh, answer is not much good, right? Um, I think that the days of sort of easily expanding across the globe the way that Facebook did um, is are over in a lot of ways. So, so I think it depends on who you ask and there's definitely sort of a nuanced perspective. It's not um, totally black and white. Uh, like I think Amazon can bring a lot of benefits to certain countries depending. Um, but I think that you also see a lot of unrest from workers who are bringing up very legitimate criticisms um, and who also, I think, are sort of saying you can't assume um, what worked in the U.S. or what worked in Europe is going to work here. Um, I think that's the big thing. Like, you need to consider our culture, our government, our regulations, our values. Um, you can't just come in here and sort of assume that you know how things work. Yeah. And and was do you see any like class-based difference? You had mentioned corporate workers and, and warehouse workers, right? And when I look at the worker rights thing, I have this like thing, right? Where I'm like, okay, I definitely support gig workers and union unionizing and, and um, warehouse workers. I don't want to see poor treatment um, 
of the more kind of white collar workers and that kind of thing either. And, and I support them kind of, but kind of what these companies do is, is colonize the global marketplace. And I see different sentiments maybe sometimes there. And I was wondering if you, I know it's maybe potentially a small sample size, but if you look at Masafumi Ito, um, somewhere in the article, you know, he basically kind of praised Amazon is a great place, you know what I mean? But he just wants to, and I know he has to say things like that, I'm sure, but, um, you know, he just wants to, um, you know, do his job and, and things like that. Um, and I do find that um, I was, or I was just wondering if, if there's a difference in sentiment towards like appreciation, potential appreciation for the company and what they do um, according to whether or not you're doing menial labor versus you know, the kind of office work? It's hard to make comparisons because the corporate workforce in most of these countries is really small, especially compared to like, you know, the number of delivery drivers in a country like India. Um, but what I was actually surprised to see with the workers in Japan in particular is just like how much solidarity there was for warehouse workers. Like you saw them often from the union Twitter account, like tweeting out in support of, um, you know, warehouse workers going on strike in the US, right? So I think that there's sort of increasing solidarity. And I saw that in my reporting in the US too. Um, you know, during the pandemic, um, this group of office workers at Amazon's headquarters in Seattle who had sort of organized um, around climate change, uh, you saw them sort of recognizing their peers in the warehouses um, as being part of the same struggle, right? Like they brought up things like, um, you know, when a warehouse closes because of, uh, you know, a weather event, like that's part of the same struggle that we're part of, right? And that like, you know, the climate change movement, the movement to end climate change and, and to save the planet is so intricately li linked with sort of like workers' rights, right? So I think like there's often been more solidarity between those groups than you might expect. Um, and that's sort of been a delightful thing to notice and see um, increase because I do think that they you know see themselves as part of the same struggle. It depends, obviously. And I think in some of these places where there is such an enormous, um, you know, material difference in the lives of like, you know, a tech worker in Bangalore versus someone who's delivering Amazon packages, which is, you know, true in a city like New York too. Um, I think that it can be difficult to sort of find commonalities, but uh, I've been sort of delighted to see how often that is actually the case. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking also in terms of the role of the company in the world. So like, do we really want a corporation, let alone a giant American one, um, running the world's search engine? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a, it's still a question of kind of like functionality and appropriateness of, of these companies privatizing these things and then, you know, operating them, um, for their, you know, to really enrich their executives and, and shareholders, um, most, um, you know, in a, in a way that concentrates wealth in their hands. Um, the last question here is, um, do you see a difference in the, um, pay, right? So equal pay for equal work. Um, is it the case that a skilled worker or a person who's doing more menial labor in the global south adjusted for cost of living gets a worse deal than in uh north america or europe or or even japan um is amazon going to these places and saying these people are already poor 
so we can get away with paying them less than we otherwise would in wealthier parts of the world. So that's what we do. Um, did you see a difference there in um, worker pay in that sense? You know, I haven't studied pay structure like, you know, directly. Uh, so I can't really say if that's like specifically what they're thinking, but I would say that like every tech company basically is sort of paying according to local market standards. So it wouldn't be unusual to me if um, they were doing that. I mean, yeah, I, I would say that they're probably paying, you know, as much as their competitors are in that local market. Um, and the, But that, that wouldn't necessarily be unusual. Um, I think there are always questions about like offshoring, right? Like is Amazon and other big tech companies moving, um, you know, customer service or, or other sorts of like tech roles from places like the US to places like India um, to save on costs, right? Like that's the pattern that we've seen um, for decades amongst, you know, like a lot of different kinds of companies, but it's not clear to me that like Amazon is particularly unique in, in designing a pay structure to sort of like undermine local workers or anything like that. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that that wraps up our questions. And um, is there anything new uh, coming down, down the pipe for you? Or, or what are you working on these days? Uh, a couple of things. Um, anything Amazon related? Uh, not really. I'm just like, continue to be really fascinated by e-commerce stuff. So if any of your listeners um, have something to share on that, uh, definitely reach out to me on Twitter. I'm always looking for sort of new ideas about um, how we're shopping online uh, or just eBay links to stuff I should be looking at. <laughs> Thanks again for having me, Michael. Yeah, thank you, Louise, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Have a good rest of your day. Okay, you too. Cheers.